is it to really have a mind? Is it just mimicking what you hear? It's remarkable to me. In this age of news cycles, what people tell you, and they have no idea what they're saying. I'm always reminded of my favorite. Einstein had some great lines. He had quite a sense of humor. One of them was, the difference between stupidity and genius is genius has its limits. You know, he came out here first originally to California, but when he was on the East Coast, supposedly the uh, true story is being driven around by a chauffeur to the different schools, and he wasn't known yet by side. And the chauffeur driving along said, now, Dr. Einstein, I have heard you give that lecture ten times. I'll bet you I could give it. And Einstein said, you're on. So at the next school, they stopped by go with Tufts or where it was that he sat down, and here's Einstein sitting up here with his hair and the chauffeur's hat, and here's the chauffeur clean cut, and he gives the lecture flawless. And everything was going great till at the very end, a professor stood up and said, Dr. Einstein, I have a question about relativity, and he asked it. And the chauffeur standing there said, I am shocked you would ask that question. That question is so simple, my chauffeur could answer that. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> when we talk about the wisdom and the mind and the brilliance of God in this thing called Presbyterian, why are you and I in here or sitting around those tables in the discipleship center? And why do you believe in Jesus? And the people down there on Ventura Boulevard or in Westwood don't. Is that because you're so smart? Is that because you and I are so holy or we're so special? That was the question for Calvin. And Calvin said, rather than obsessing on the object of God's love, you and I, we need to obsess on the cause of salvation, God. And what Calvin, and try to sum up Calvinism, and almost every Protestant who is on this planet owes a debt to Calvin. He was not infallible, but genius is a word we throw around a lot, but it certainly applied to him. And to sum it up, three things. First of all, God's decrees are eternal. God dictates the beginning and the end. And nothing changes that. He is the first great cause. He is not dependent on anything. But because God's decrees are eternal, second of all, God's designs are flexible. Nothing changes God's decree, so He can flex any way that He wants at any given time. And because of that, it all comes from God's desires, and the 50-cent word is immutable, unchanging. You can't say, here is God's justice, and here is His mercy. You can't say here is God's holiness, but here he's being loving. He is perfectly, as in the Hebrew, achad, one. And it is this great love. And as Calvin looks at this, and if Luther was the trumpet call that started the Reformation, Calvin was the composer who orchestrated the score that the rest of the Reformation would follow and sing along to. It was a, a remarkable man. Our drama department has a little video, a little montage on this to give us a little snapshot about Calvin's life. Watch this. John Calvin was born in 1509 in a small French town. Though originally intended for priesthood, John's father decided a law career would be more lucrative. In the course of his studies, Calvin learned Greek, which later would be crucial for studying the New Testament. At age 24, in 1553, Calvin experienced a religious conversion, which in his own words, immediately inflamed him with a desire to learn the Bible. This, along with the death of his father, left him free to study theology. That same year, Calvin was linked to certain reformers who opposed the Roman Catholic Church. At this time, the Church was persecuting Protestants as heretics and burning them at the stake. 
So he was forced to flee Paris, and for the next year he remained on the move, eventually joining friends in Basel, Switzerland. There he published his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, in 1536. He continued to update this work throughout the course of his life. It is still considered the most comprehensive single volume ever written on Reformed theology. That same year, fellow reformer William Farrell convinced Calvin to join him in helping reform the church in Geneva. Their work, however, met with resistance, and eventually the two men were expelled. Calvin continued to Strasbourg, where he became a pastor to French-speaking refugees. There he preached, lectured, and in 1540 married a young widow who had two children from her first marriage. After several peaceful years in Strasbourg, Calvin found himself with an unusual invitation. Geneva, the very place that had expelled him, was now asking him back to lead their church. Calvin's initial reaction was indignant. However, he returned on a temporary basis and ended up remaining in Geneva for the rest of his life. He continued to preach and develop his doctrine of reformation. In support of his reforms, Geneva passed the ecclesiastical ordinances defining four orders of ministerial function, pastors, doctors, elders, and deacons. Believing fervently in the power of music to support scripture, but distrusting its use in religious services, Calvin banned musical instruments, but allowed people to sing the psalms and other scriptures. He even went so far as to shut down taverns, turning them into evangelical refreshment centers, where one could drink alcohol, as long as it was in the presence of biblical teaching. As Calvin continued his reforms, he encountered bitter opposition from powerful families in Geneva he referred to as libertines, since they saw themselves as exempt from both church and civil law. But over the years, an influx of supportive refugees and new elections to the council weakened the power of Calvin's opponents, who were eventually forced out. Calvin spent his last years promoting the Reformation, both in Geneva and throughout Europe. He wrote commentaries on most books of the Bible and preached regularly, expounding the doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God in human salvation. Today, Calvin's writings and teachings are used in Reformed, and Presbyterian churches throughout the world. So Calvin's life, as you see, as so somebody really pushing on the sovereignty of God. I love that. You can only drink alcohol when I'm preaching. I mean, we should put a wet bar in here, don't you think? Uh, take care of our debt right like that. But, but for Calvin, all of life uh, belonged to God. And for him, that it's God's decrees are eternal. Why is that so important to Calvin? Because it pointed out that you didn't talk God into loving you. You didn't have to please it, that God loved you before you even wanted it. And it gets us a lot from Paul. Turn with me back over to 1 Corinthians to that second chapter. Paul, of course, has written to them before. So this is really kind of like 2 Corinthians. And it's kind of a grocery list of questions. But as he writes to these Greeks... As, and the Romans, who had the wisdom of classical Greece there, he says, we have a different wisdom. He says in verse 1, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery, mysterious of God to you in lofty words of wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. 
Paul could have blown their mental yarmulkes off their heads. Paul was brilliant. He could have easily done this. But he said, I came to you not in fancy words, but in weakness and humility, because I didn't come to impress you. I came to see the Spirit of God transform you, that you wouldn't trust my words, but the power of God. Margaret Thatcher had a great line when she said, if you have to tell people you're in control, you're not. (laughs) And very much, if you have to tell people you're smart, you're not. Paul didn't need to tell anybody he was smart. He knew where he was, but it was in the power of God. And so he goes on. Look what he says next, though. Yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Pro horizo. Pro meaning before horizo is the boundaries. God's decrees are eternal. God chose long ago how this universe would go. Why are you sitting in the place you are? Is it predetermined? For some of you it must be because you're there every single week, but... No, even as Sartre, who was one of the more depressing philosophers, said, you are doomed to freedom, whether you like it or not. God is absolutely sovereign, and yet he has given to you and I this freedom, never above his sovereignty, but you're not a little robotan. And so what for important for Calvin, he is saying in God's plan, that God doesn't just kind of pull start the universe and let it go and see what happens. He doesn't put the car off the cliff and go, well, let's see which way it goes. Or like uh, Jackson Pollock taking paint and just throwing it by gravity against the canvas. God's brushstroke is in every detail. And yet, you are not a little robotan. It's not extreme predeterminism. And so for Calvin, the sovereignty of God, and this word predestined, prohorizo, It means it goes as God wants it to go. Now, God is not willing that any should perish. But what he is saying is not that God chose this side of the room to be saved and this side of the room to be lost. Aren't you glad you're sitting on this side of the room? But God called and he decreed. What he did, though, say is it will go as I say. And God is willing, but he has given us this freedom. And so he allows us to be able to respond. And this, some of these things you can understand, some you can't. Turn back over to Deuteronomy, to the 29th chapter, page 163 in your pew Bible there. God is outside time and space. Ex nihilo is the theological term. Out of nothing God speaks and it happens. All of our studying of the Big Bang and the trillion milliseconds before when when compounds create, it's God speaking that that takes place. And so... We can understand some things, other things not. Look what this is. Now, of course, you know, Moshe, Moses, they're getting ready to go into the promised land, and he's reviewing the law for them. And then in the middle, he says this. This is great. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever to observe all the words of this law. Now, what that means, God knows some things you and I never will. But he's given enough for us to know. Remember one time uh, I was over in Scotland studying that, and the student, he was really kind of in an argument with the professor because he kept saying, explain it to me, explain it to me. And I remember the prof said a great thing. He said, lad, do allow God to know some things you don't. 
And isn't that true that we're all going, come on, explain it to me. And God says, you don't have the gray matter. And we go, oh, yes, we do. He says, trust me on this one. No, you don't. But you just keep looking here. I'm showing you what I'm doing. And if you ever want to know what God is like. And this book, this Bible is not a book written about God. This book is a book inspired by God written about you and me. And if you ever want to know what he's like, the visible image of the invisible God, Jesus, the Son of God. And that is what Calvin's big teaching is about. And so it is predetermined. You are free, but not free to go against God's will. I remember the last time I went to a water park with my children. I have no idea why I did. Is it not true some of those slides are so tall that you dry off before you hit the bottom of them? And I remember one of them we climbed up to, and I think you needed oxygen. And we were up there, and you look down, and it twirls on it. And if you sit in this one, it ends over in this pool. You have no idea. It's just this tube that comes out. Or if you're sitting over here, it's going to end up in this pool. Now, you put your fanny in one of those tubes, you can do all sorts of stuff inside. You can gyrate. You can do it the easy way or the hard way. But you're going to end up in that pool, not this one. That, in essence, is Calvinism. And I'm about as Calvinistic as Calvin was. Some people are hyper-Calvinist, like the old Scotsman who b- fell down and broke his leg and said, oh, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> it's kind of like everything that happens is not God making it happen in that sense, but he has set this up, and this is a mystery. And I want to tell you, the mysterion to me, the longer I live, this gets deeper, not resolved. Why do some people respond to the gospel and others don't? Now, we're judged according to the light that's shown us. Jesus said, of whom much is given, much is required. Of whom little is given, little is required. God is the one who will be judged and sorting out those who belong versus those who reject. But the longer I live, it's just a strange event. Some people hear and they go, yeah. And other people go, nah. And why is that? God, Calvin would say that God is calling the elect. And the elect doesn't mean necessarily those that don't have any participation in it, but the ones whom God knows will respond. But he doesn't call you because he knows you'll respond. And this is where it's trying to get into the mind of God. Calvin just goes way out there. When I was sitting in a field in 1971, coming off of a night of heavy partying, and my life was going nowhere, and my friends were going nowhere, and I reached up and I said, if there's a God out there and you're so tough, I dare you to change my life. And when God heard that, Calvin would say, God didn't go, oh, Brewer accepted me, now i got to save him. That he didn't want to, but I did that because he was already calling me. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. And the reason you and I are in here is God was loving you and calling you before you ever wanted anything to do with him. And that's where you need to chillax, Calvin says. If this is the work of God, not of our work, why are we so desperately trying to hold on like we could lose that? God's decrees are eternal. Therefore, God's designs can be flexible. When Calvin, of course, his mother... She has four children. One of them dies. The three boys survive. Calvin's mother, John's mother, died when he was a, a boy. He's the oldest of the three. She had a breast infection, not breast cancer, and she dies of it. So his father, Gerard, raises the three boys, and he's going to send them off in to be priests. Why? Because that's how you got ahead in the 16th century. His father worked likewise in one of the cathedrals there. 
But John, they had a wealthy family in Paris that saw the mind of this young guy. And so they put him into a school in the University of Orleans as a young boy. And he just blows through classes. One of the greatest minds of the 16th century was teaching him Latin. He, he just m- devours it. Then he takes Greek on his own, which he'll start translating later the Bible from Greek versus the Latin translations of it to get more original. So he goes on and he goes on to school. His father dies when he's in his late teens. And so Calvin all of a sudden has this profound religious experience. And he only talks about it later in the beginning of his commentary on the Psalms. And he writes back, they were going into the priesthood. And remember, he doesn't want to leave the Catholic Church. He loves the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church, many of them are teaching what he thinks is heresy. And he says this, quote, being exceedingly alarmed at the misery to which I had fallen. He said, I looked at my life and it stunk. And much more threatened me with my eternal death. Like when I die, where will I be? I duty bound made it my first business to betake myself to your way, condemning my past life, not without groans and tears. And you wonder if he's groaning and moaning because he has to give up the partying life or he's groaning about his party life. And now, O Lord, what remains to a wretch like me, but instead of defense earnestly supplicate you not to judge me from that fearful abandonment of your word according to its deserts, that means its end, from which in your wondrous goodness you have at last delivered me. And what he is saying is that God, it would, you can love me, and if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he began preaching along with Nicholas Kopp about how to redo the Catholic Church. And at this time, they get a sentence put on him and so they take off of there he was going to leave and just wanted to write at 26 years old he writes the institutes of the christian religion and if you have ever read these at 26 and they he keeps working on them his whole life unbelievable brain that god has given this guy he's running and he stops in geneva one night and one of the reformers by the name of Farrell says well you can't just go write books you got to stay here and help me change the city and he said no and Pharaoh tells him, well, God's going to curse you. And he buys it. I need to do that. If you don't come to the 9 o'clock service, God is going to curse you. I tell you that. But... And so he stays and they redo Geneva. Now, keep in mind, that's not weird because church law and civil law are one and the same. Secular nations are starting to form, but they're not there yet. Can you imagine if the L.A. supervisors got together every morning opened the Bible and said, let's make civil code for Los Angeles from the scriptures. That's what they were doing. And he said, all of life is holy to God. It's as holy, he said, for a farmer to be planting as it is to give the sacraments. It's as holy for a chambermaid to be emptying the chamber pot as it is to be singing in the cathedral. And what he's saying is, all of this is unto God. There's not sacred and secular. It's all to the beauty of God. And so as he continues on and he realizes that it's god is the one who called him they run him out of town because he's so strict he goes to strasburg and while he's there he's preaching twice a day seven days a week new sermons each time but he's not married and so all the ladies in the church are offering their daughters to him and he says this to them i who have the air about being so hostile to celibacy i am still not married and don't know whether i'll ever be If I take a wife, it will be because of better freed from numerous worries. I can better devote myself to the Lord. Unquote. What he's saying is, uh, I'm not married yet, but if I do, it will be to get on with life. 
He, somebody arranges a noble daughter to marry him on May in 1540, and he really doesn't want to. He says, well, he'll do it if she learns French. So she learns French, and, he's, and before the wedding, though, he, he calls it off. Later, he says this about this, quote, I never would have married her unless the Lord had entirely bereft me of my wits, unquote. <laughs> so I said, man, unless I was nuts, I would go, well, you know. I remember, I forget which one of my daughters asked Carolyn as a young girl, is that true that you're not completed till you're married? And Carolyn said, yeah, and then you're finished. But it, <laughs> he will that August marry this widow with the two kids and they'll, they'll get on with life. And then Geneva calls him back. And he said, I would die a thousand deaths and go back to that city. And yet he says, God's decrees are eternal so God's designs can be flexible. There are times that God's going to have you go back to the same people, to the same situation, to the same job, the same church, that you would never do that. God says, I'm at work here. You keep your eyes right here. God's designs can change. In the Old Testament, what's the sign in the New Testament of belonging to God is baptism? In the Old Testament, it's circumcision. And you think our new member classes are hard. I tell you that. In the Old Testament, it was when did they worship our Jewish friends yesterday was Shabbat, Friday night and Saturday. It's Sunday morning because of the resurrection when Christ is raised from the dead. It was the people of God. Israel was the vehicle. Now the church, both Jew and Gentile alike, are brought in. And someday it will just be the kingdom itself. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, the one prayer God can never answer is encore. Do it again exactly that way. He can't do it. And you and I, we want it the way it was. It was comfortable. We understood that. And God will change our cash flow. He will change our physical health. He will change everything. And God will do this, not because God is angry, but because God is love. And therefore, not only is design flexible, but it's, his desires are immutable. You can't say God was mad with me here, so he did this, but here he gave me a break. Calvin will point out that therefore, chillax. Just like you're sitting in that pew holding your weight, you didn't test it before you sat down because you've had good experience with pews before. Likewise, rest upon the sovereignty of God that He has always loved you. Even when you fail and when you sin now, that doesn't change God's heart. He wants us to stop sinning. Calvin will get all over people about this because it's killing us and because it dishonors God's name. But it's not that God doesn't love you because you're a good girl or boy. It's because God is good. And he wants to share that with us. And so Geneva will take him back and he will experience and he will point out one of his commentaries on God's blessing of Abraham. Remember what God said to Abraham? I'm going to bless you and multiply. You're going to be like the stars of the heaven. Now get out. Get out of your home country, leave what's secure, and you follow me and I'll bless you. And God says, I want to bless you and take you. Now get out. You get moving and you get dependent upon me. I don't like that any more than you until you get the rhythm of God's creativity. And you realize that his heart all along has been pulling us. And it's called the order of salvation. Last passage, turn with me over to Romans to the 8th chapter. Page 919 in your pew Bible. And what is it that makes us happy? Notice uh, if Calvin were here, we wouldn't have any instruments. You'd only be singing with the instrument of your voice because he thought the organ and things got in the way of the real singing of God. 
But what makes us happy? You know, the last 15 years, the science of psychology and the science of looking at what makes us happy. And one of the things that they pointed out is complaining. It's a great study I was reading this past week. Dr. Robin Kowalski on the dissatisfaction threshold and complaining. He has them sing the Psalms. Why? So that they'll be more positive. And many of the Psalms are down. You ever read those? I mean, the Psalms of lament, it's like, God, you're not listening. They're winning. <laughs> that's the end of the song. You know, that's kind of nice. Let's go home. But he, but why do we complain? Well, it's interesting complaining. Kowalski says one of the reasons is a cathartic complaining. It gets it off your chest. I can't believe the 405. I can't believe the sermon is going this long. I can't believe I don't have this money. I can't. But what's interesting, they, Kowalski points out, when you express yourself, you intensify the emotion. But your sense of getting it out. Some complaining comes from self-presentation, they call it. You complain because you think others want you to complain. Every Carol and I, one time when we were in uh, southern France, eating in this restaurant with uh, friends we had met over there. It was an expensive restaurant because I, I let him pay. And his, But he was sitting there complaining about the food wasn't this good, and he should only see where the other places are. And they went to go to the restroom, and there they had a Michelin star. You know, the, what were they rated at one of the top restaurants in France? And he comes back and sits down, and he goes, this is one of the finest restaurants I have ever been in, you know. He all of a sudden liked it because people told him, and some of our complaining, we complain because we think we're supposed to. But some complaining is face-saving also. We complain about things because we're saving face on our own failure. I remember I told our children one time to go clean their room, and they had already cleaned it. And I went up there and I said, go clean your room. And one of them said, yeah, well, you're fat. What does that have to do with anything? What does my being fat have to do with your clean room? Well, it's kind of that, well, don't tell me, I can't, look, look at you, look in the mirror, ha, 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 ha. Complaining is okay unless you're complaining to the person you're complaining about. And Calvin will say, it is one thing to voice our distress, but when we call it against our life, we're calling God into the judgment place. We're saying, God, I hold you accountable for this. And Calvin says, the coin, you've heard the term in real estate, the three things are location, location, location. You know, that's a paraphrase of one of the reformers' documents that says the end of all theology is humility, humility, humility. The more you know, the more you're humbled that this God would love and that he keeps loving, that he is in control. We can resign as CEO of the universe of our lives right now. Somebody else has got it. He not only has our backside, he has all sides. The past and the future are all in the eternal now with God. And that's why his heart is still loving and caring. And that's why he can orchestrate these things to our direction. And the eyes of faith can see that. And Romans 8, 26. Yeah, you thought I forgot. Page 919, the 26th verse Paul, of course, is writing this massive theological treatise, his largest. He's never been to this church yet. We saw last week. 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. for We do not know how to pray as we ought. But the very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Pause. I believe in the gift of tongues that God gives to certain people for the good of God. But I don't think that's what it's talking about here. I think the Holy Spirit himself, who's praying for you to the Father right now, is sighing too deep to articulate. 
And God who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. On that basis, what goes next? We know that all things work together for good, soon ergon, for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Because the Holy Spirit right now knows you and me, and right now the Holy Spirit is interceding to the Father on, Mark needs this for what? For me to grow into the image of Christ. Look what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, there's that word again, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn with a large family. And those whom he predestined, he called, kaleo. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. If I took a gun right now and shot at that window, you'd see that glass break before you heard the sound. But that's not what caused it. What caused it was my pulling the trigger and the bullet going through there, even though it looks like it's instantaneous. When you and I say, Christ, I need you, take me back, bang, for Calvin, the order of salvation is because God had been calling you and loving you before you were ever born and loving you. And in the mystery that God wants, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to a saving knowledge. But in God, he knows. And so Calvin will use this little teaching tool. He uses an acronym, TULIP, if you've heard as a Presbyterian, the five letters, T is the total depravity of man. That we are such a bad state. Not only do we not do good, we don't even want to do good. We're here because God loved us. You unconditional election. God saved you and me not because he knew we would do that. L is the limited atonement. Here Calvin, when Christ died on that cross and said it's finished, if he actually paid for all the sins of the world, that means God couldn't justly let anybody go to hell because it's all paid for. So Calvin would say, well, he didn't really die for those that didn't respond. I is irresistible grace. You can swim against this, but like a rip current, you can swim all you want, but God's grace is going to pull you right into his arms. And P, the perseverance of the saints. What God started, he's going to finish. And whether I like it or whether you like it or not, someday when you stand in front of Christ and he holds a mirror up, you're going to be glorious to his glory and credit, and to our blessing. And Calvin keeps saying, mellow out. Work all the harder, not for achieving, but because you already are accepted. Like what uh, Rich Mao said, he was talking about what if being elected. And then there's a passage in Acts 13, if you read it later, where it says, those who were elected respond to the gospel. And this is what... Presbyterians are, are where they get this idea of election and call and predestination is those that would respond. Rich likes to say, as president of Fuller Seminary as well as a member here, that what if during a presidential election somebody was elected and they spent the next four years just going, isn't it amazing I was elected? What if they got study groups and spent money trying to figure out why they were... I'm elected. Out of all the millions of Americans, I'm your president. Wouldn't we go, what were you elected for? And rather than standing and saying that God's mercy called me, isn't that amazing? God says, and why did I do that? 
so that you can go love and can go share and can tell, can help the poor and the broken to do away with bigotry racially and ethnically, to do away with the despair with our elderly that are locked away alone and our young that are going, my goodness, what is life going to be? That we can proclaim the good news of Christ. Amen? And that's what we are elected to do and to live. And this is where the strength of this love of God compels us. Calvin will in the last of his life. And as Geneva, as he tries to make it a Christian, we're trying to make this the greatest city for Christ. Calvin tried to do that in Geneva. It's a success and a failure in a lot of it. Calvin will at the end of his life, though. He has this a gentleman who is speaking against him. Michael Severus was a Spanish philosopher, a Protestant, who was against infant baptism and against the Trinity. And Calvin kind of knew him. And one day, and because of the Spanish Inquisition going on at this time, Calvin arranges for him to be arrested and executed. The reformers, some of them who were burnt at the stake for being a heretic, will turn around and do the same to others they disagree with. And it shows this great need for all of us, no matter how smart we are, for humility, humility, humility. Does the abused one become the abuser? Calvin, by the way, is the most pro-Jewish of all the reformers and because he sees the church in Israel. But later in his life, as he will be preaching and he gets a horrible cold and he goes into a coughing fit up front, preaching 14 times a week, I can see why. And he gets an aneurysm in his lung. And it starts to fill with blood and he knows he's going to die. And he will call in his friends and the little bit of money that he has that he will give to the church and to Geneva to help the poor. And he will go to glory. And what his whole legacy is, the Protestant work ethic. You're not stuck. You're not put in a state that you have to be in. You can change things. You can trust God. You can make a difference. This is, we all owe this to Calvin's thinking at this time. And the security we have in Christ. Gentlemen, we'll see next week who came down and learned from Calvin by the name of John Knox will go back and change a nation. But the story is, as an older woman was one time preaching about we are saved by grace, by faith alone, not by our good works. And someone asked her, the Scottish woman, if when you stand before Christ, what are you going to do if he says, you're not good enough, you go to hell? She said, if on that day I were to lose my soul, that would be a dark day for me. But I would tell God he had lost his honor and the universe would unravel at that moment. But she says, if, if, if I go to hell, not because of my bad works, I would tell God, you lied to me. You told me on the basis of what you had done that it was taken care of and you have dishonored your own name and the cosmos would unravel. That's exactly what Calvin is saying. You can rest not in the goodness of who we are, but the greatness of God. Therefore, we can say to others, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. All things work together for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
For this slight momentary affliction, Paul says, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And Paul will say, I consider that this present suffering, and Paul knew what it was to suffer. This present suffering is not worth even comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in all of us. God's decrees are eternal. He loves you more, more, more before you ever knew it and right now. His designs are flexible. You try to put God in a box and say, this is the way it's always got to be. You hold on to the rope like that, you're going to get a rope burn. (laughs) But to give God the freedom to say, do a new work in me because God's desires is just and holy, forgiving and mercy, perfectly unified. What human eye has never seen. Think of everything you've seen, the beauty. Human ear has never heard. Think of the most beautiful thing. Think of the imagination of the most wonderful moment you could ever have. doesn't come close to the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you have loved us before we were ever asking or aware of it. And God, it's not because we are so holy or so special, but out of the mystery of your goodness that you have poured upon us in Jesus Christ. And if there are any listening right now that you've been aware of another voice besides mine tugging, and you are aware that it is the Lord himself. You don't have to do a hundred push-ups or memorize the Bible. But if you feel, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears and opens the door, I will come in and utter... Live with them and they with me. You just need to say, Christ, I believe when you hung on that cross and died that you paid for the dumb things I will ever do. I believe you're alive and I don't understand it, but I take all I know of me and I give it to all I know of you. Come and take my life. And right now, you'll start a relationship that will go longer than when the Milky Way is just an old tale. Thank you, Lord, for this boldness. Thank you for this love. And God, now as in response as we are stewards of what you've loaned to us for this journey, Pray that you bless the gift of this offering for those that need food and clothing and those that need medicine. And that, Lord, that the church might reign more fully until the head of the church, Christ himself, returns. In his name we pray. Amen.